BCE instead Story of 9000 BCE. What's interesting about Crete, though, is that it's established uh, academic knowledge is mainstream. The mainstream view is that it has been habitated by people for 130,000 years. And I showed you the Mediterranean around Crete with the mm -hmm. sea level lowered 400 feet, which would be the level of the last ice age. There's no land bridge to Crete. You're not getting there by walking. You're getting there by boat. So 130,000 years ago, there were people on Crete. The only implication of that, not the only one, a, main, a major implication of that is that if there were people there, they had to have gotten there by boat. They didn't swim. It's too far to swim. The other interesting thing is on Crete, we see a Neolithic farming culture. And it's firmly established as far back as 7,000 BCE. There's also evidence of an earlier culture that that farming culture replaced. And then around 3,000 BCE, we see the Minoans. We see that culture come into that Neolithic farming culture on Crete. So continuous occupation, we can look back and see these cultures. The other interesting thing, one of the other interesting things about the Minoans is there's two sets of scripts, what they call Minoan script, and also Linear A, which are both, uh, they believe, uh, the uh, preceders of Linear B. Linear B has been deciphered. Minoan script and Linear A still have not been deciphered. So we have writing uh, that we find on Crete that we cannot read and dates far back into the past before any known other writing. We also know that um, Crete has been occupied for at least 130,000 years. When we look at it, there's clearly a bull culture. There is something exotic about the culture that we see on Crete. It's a high culture, and it seems very mature. There are well-documented ruins there. The climate in 9600 BCE was a good climate, just like it is today. And Crete is accessible via the Mediterranean from the Atlantic, which was one of our criteria. However, there are some real problems with Crete being the Atlantean capital. It's really too close to the world that Plato knew. It's too close to Egypt. It's not outside the Strait of Gibraltar. There's some argument that there are other straits that could be interpreted as the Strait of Heracles. But Crete, it's actually part of Greece, and geographically it's so close, Plato would have known about it, and he wouldn't have told us, uh, he wouldn't have used Crete he wouldn't have described Crete to us while telling us he was telling us a true story or something farther in the past. We also have the challenge of the landmass, and I mentioned I'm going to use this 345-mile um, slope to the sea, and even with the lower uh, sea levels, there's just not enough room in the Mediterranean for any of these Mediterranean locations to have been the capital city. Does that mean Crete wasn't Atlantis? Of course it does not mean that. It, this is where everyone else has kind of gotten to this, and they say, well, it's not the capital, so it's not Atlantis. Maybe Santorini is, which, of course, Santorini is ridiculously close to, um, to Crete. Well, it's not. This is the, the dialogue, if we're literally taking Plato as true, and he tells us that there's a 3,000 stadia gently sloping plain to the sea that the city sat on, then we have to be able to find that. And we just can't find that at Crete. Having said that, I think there's still a really good chance that Crete was part of the Atlantean Kingdom, which means Crete is part of Atlantis, which means if we keep looking at this, Crete might be part of Atlantis with a little A.
as I was putting the images together for this video and going through my notes, I had forgotten, but I've highlighted it here. There are some very, very strange underwater formations to the south of Crete. They look to me exactly like the early LIDAR images we're getting out of the Amazon, where it's potentially something that, in this case, is under the seafloor, under silt, has been submerged. The scope of it is substantial. That The, the, the area I have highlighted is um, dozens and dozens of miles across. Also, when I lowered the sea level by 400 feet, this area is still underwater. You have to lower the sea level by something like 400 meters to start to get this area above water. So I have no idea what it is, but it, it is so regimentally laid out that it certainly does seem like something. So in our analysis, when we look at Crete, there's lots of evidence that it was probably a memory. It's probably all that was left of the Atlantean culture that also would have evolved because it was considerably earlier. And there are still unexplored and interesting anomalies in and around the island. So let's fire up the old Atlantis detector. Here, there's a lot of compelling information on Crete. I'm not going to try and go into it all. I don't want these videos to be an hour long. Uh, Crete is easy uh, to research and is very well documented with the Minoan. I pulled two excerpts from two articles here, one from the University of Washington, one from uh, Cambridge University Press. The first one is just um, uh, an official academic statement establishing the Minoans 5,000 years ago and then replacing uh, the Neolithic uh, agrarian community from 4,000 years before that. And then I pulled an article from Cambridge University that shows there's evidence maybe of even um, something before the, 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 the agrarian culture that got replaced, right, the Neolithic reoccupation. Um, that gets us that gets us back. So if you look at the gap, I'm trying to find percentages, and, and there's no easy way to do it, and, and the percentage seems very accurate, um, but it's, it's more just a guide. And for us, I believe if you look at all the compelling information they found on Crete, if you look at the Minoans and the ruins they have, and you look at that culture and all of the um, evidence around that culture, you look at the fact we know that Crete was uh, occupied for at least 130,000 years. We have the agrarian Neolithic uh, population there. Uh, we can see that. So all in all, there's a 27% time gap. That, that's, that's all there is. We, we have culturally, we have the anthropology, we have um, all of the artifacts. We can trace arguably the occupation, uh, a, a Neolithic occupation back to within a margin of error of Atlantis. That margin of error is basically 27%. It's a big margin of error. I, I get it. But all we have to do is solve that 27%. And Crete fits the province of Atlantis almost perfectly. We also know that the Atlanteans had pushed into the Mediterranean. They were waging war. Crete is a very strategic location to do that against the Greeks.
So if Crete's one of those provinces, it should be a name in the twins list. Now I've worked with a linguist and we've loosely identified some associations, but I haven't finished the studying. So all I want to do now when we find a place that feels like it, it, it's a good candidate as a province of Atlantis, I want to identify the potential twin names and we'll park those. And then when we get the whole thing figured out, then we'll go back and we'll dig into that linguistic um, and phonetic information and see how close of a match we can get. Here are the two names I like for Crete, and the Minoans are the Nisus and the Mester uh, twins. Both of those have a uh, linguistic and phonetic tie to the Minoans, and I think we can probably find some experts and see how close we can get to agreeing that those names linguistically come from this region. So I think it's really interesting when you really look at it that Crete aligning to the Atlantean Empire, the only piece of data we don't have is a 27% gap in the timeline. We can get all the way back using current academic understanding. We can get all the way back to 7,000 BC. We need to get back to 9,600 BC. The difference there, if you take the reciprocal of that 27%, is 73. So we're going to use that since everything else seems to line up. I'm going to say there's a 73% chance that Crete was one of the Atlantean provinces. There's a 0% chance it was the Atlantean capital. It doesn't fit any of the criteria um, that we established, and it can't stand up to our Atlantis detector of that 345-mile gently sloping plane to the sea. Crete has a lot going for it, though. It has well-documented ancient history. It's still a tourist site, so it's not only legitimate ancient history, but it's very well-studied ancient history. It has multiple forms of writing, some of which are still undeciphered, that suggest something going on in the past. It's a cultural fit for Atlantis, and it seems to culturally um, present in a lot of the frescoes and murals that we can still see a concept that seem to resonate with the Atlantean ideals. It's a location known to be populated in 9600 BCE and actually well before that. And we have a date of 7000 BCE, an agricultural transformation. Th that time period, 7000 BCE, 9600 BCE, it's a long time, but the it's very hard to see that far back in the past. So those who are approaching a margin of error, I'm not saying they're within a margin of error, but they are approaching a margin of error. So there's a relatively small gap then between the mainstream academic view and the view that this was a province of Atlantis. We've identified uh, two twin names that should be studied as possible linguistic uh, or phonetic relationships with the Minoans. And we're going to put Crete as a 73% chance of having been a province of Atlantis based upon our analysis. We will come back to that and we'll verify that because we're not going to finish this series until everything, until we've answered everything. Uh, but right now we're going to park this to 73% positive chance.
I know we've just gotten started on the location analysis, which is, of course, the interesting piece to this entire series. But in order to do this right, we have to have the context set. And some of the reactions I got to the first video suggested to me that I hadn't done a good enough job yet of explaining the methodology that we're following. So I'm going to do that in this video. I'm currently also working on the Malta video. That place is bonkers. Um, so it's taking me a little longer than I thought it would to get it all together. So from a methodology standpoint, we are working towards a grand unified theory of Atlantis. And as I point out in some of the other videos, but I'll point out here, Atlantis is actually three things. This is very clear from the dialogues. It's a city, it's a continent, and it's a kingdom. In the look for Atlantis, we're often confronted with what we call the fool's choice. This goes along with Occam's razor. Occam's razor says that we want to push away all the noise and that the most simple answer, the most obvious answer, is probably the right answer. The fool's choice tells us that we don't want to find ourselves restricting our analysis, thinking that we have to make choices between A or B, when in fact we can also consider A and B, which is what we're doing, and that is clearly the foundational principle that's going to lead us to this grand unified theory of Atlantis. As I've said before, and I will continue to make the point, Atlantis is at least 10 places. We get this from the dialogue. So it's silly to think that the places that show signs of something going on in 9600 BC and show signs of an exotic culture, it's almost like because we are finding more than one of them, it's nullified our ability to correlate this, these findings, to the dialogue. We're going to use this map and we're going to methodically look at each of these places and make an assessment. We're going to decide if the place qualifies as a location that could be the capital city, and if not, we're going to see if it qualifies as a location that could be one of the Atlantean provinces. Once we've done that, we're going to look phonetically at the twins list to see if there's any hint or clue to the location's name. I'll give you an example. In the very first video, we looked at two twin names, Gnosis and Mester. Now, I don't want to jump ahead. I'm trying to be as methodical as I can. But that first one, M-N-E-S-E-U-S, phonetically is pronounced almost identical to K-N-O-S-S-O-S, -S -S, Gnosis, which is the name of the Minoan capital on Crete. Interesting. We're not to that analysis yet, but this is the types of things that we're breaking apart with this methodology so that we can organize the whole thing and build both a physical and a linguistic case. So that's our goal, and that's why we're using this worksheet. As we go through these videos, we, we will record our analysis, and by the time we're done, and by the time we come back and look at the areas that we've identified gaps in, this worksheet is going to paint the entire picture of our Grand Unified Theory. So as we work to our Grand Unified Theory and we do our analysis, what I'm doing is we identify all of the criteria 
and then if we can't meet any of the criteria, we attempt to convert that gap into a percentage. As I mentioned in the creep video, but I probably wasn't as clear as I could have been, this isn't a perfect science. The percentage is going to look more precise than it actually is. It's more of a guide. But I wanted to convert it into something quantifiable so we can see when we're far apart and we can see when we're not. For example, with Crete, everything lines up. We have the exotic culture, we have um, the ruins, we have um, a landmass that would have been strategic, may have been mentioned, may not have been. We have to do that twins analysis. But the goal is always to get to a percentage. So in this case, we took the timeline of Atlantis, 9600 BC, we took the timeline that um, modern archaeology gets us to on Crete, 7000 BC. We looked at that gap of 2,600 years. We converted it into a percentage, how far, you know, how far back we need to go versus how far back can we go. It's 27%. That is the only gap. That's the only gap if, if we are taking Plato's story as true. And it's a 27% gap. So now when we start to put all these places together, we'll be able to see how far or close far. apart we are. And what we're going to find, I believe, is that we're really not that far apart that we found enough, especially when we start to factor in Gobe Lake Tepe, which I'll probably do a separate video on, that establishes the technology level, that establishes that advanced idea. So we know what we're looking for. We're looking for a Gobe Lake Tepe somewhere. So we have it all. We'll, we'll quantify it. Once we lay it all out in that worksheet, then we'll see where we are. The other thing we're looking for, as I've mentioned, is the idea of Atlantis with a capital A and then Atlantis without the capital A. Now, I think to punctuate it, it's always going to have a capital A, but my point there is one of these ten Atlantises is going to be the capital. That's the one with the capital A. And the, all the others will be provinces. They're all still Atlantis, as, as we've talked about, because Atlantis is three things. That, that's one of our themes. The last thing I'm going to do is I'm going to start doing kind of a, it won't be the same piece of film, but I'm going to start doing a summary at the beginning of these videos. If you're following along, please don't get put off by that. I'm trying to keep these as um, uh, concise uh, as possible, but we've got new people coming in. For example, one of the comments I got on one of the other videos was what a shame it was that I didn't know what I was talking about because I'm not considering the dialogue. I clearly haven't read it. Well, of course, not only have, have we read it here together, but we have decomposed it. We've done a lot of work with it. But people don't know. They watch video number eight or nine. They don't go back and watch videos number one or two. So I'm going to start including that, that, that summary introduction, whatever you want to call it, just to keep people up to speed. It's probably the right thing to do. And I'm learning how to communicate this as much as I'm learning, just like you are, all those interesting things about Atlantis. So I'm working on Crete. As I said, that should be out by this weekend. Um, and uh, thank you for following along. Thank you for sticking with me. something that can be blocked in a meaningful and reasonable way. The Earth has fallen away all around and sunk out of sight. The consequence is that in comparison of what then was, there are remaining only the bones of the wasted body 
as they may be called, as in the case of small islands, all the richer and softer parts of the soil having fallen away and the mere skeleton of the land being left. I've included this one. You've probably never heard that line from the prettiest dialogue before. He is not specifically speaking about the capital city. Instead, this is a portion of the dialogue where the characters are trying to explain the magnitude of the destruction and the danger uh, or the catastrophe that happened. But I think it's a very descriptive line that can help us as a nice to have. We can't use it as a primary requirement, but if we find locations for the capital city that also show signs of devastation, that will help. So there it is. There are 12 core requirements for a location to match what Plato tells us about the Atlantean capital city. It's fascinating that there's only 12. Now, obviously, the capital city is going to have to sit on a landmass that matches the continent, and it's going to have to also meet the requirements of the kingdom. These are requirements that we have to now still derive from the dialogues. But in all of the dialogues, in all of the thousands of years of people looking for Atlantis, the capital city, these are the only 12 clues that we have. We're dealing with a translated document in the Platonic Dialogues, Timaeus and Critias, and we're dealing with translations sometimes that are hundreds of years old. The definition of words can drift and can be imprecise. We have to carefully define the terms that we use to make sure that we're not carrying unwarranted biases into our assumptions about those words. Since this video is about the Atlantean continent, one of the first things we have to define is what a continent is. There is no strict definition for what a continent is. It turns out a continent is defined by convention rather than any strict criteria. A continent is just a large, continuous mass of land also considered a region. It's a contrivance, a convention. This means when we consider the Atlantean continent, we have to understand that it's not as precise a definition as we would like, and it's more of a convention. In addition to the specific meanings of words, we also must make sure that we're considering the geography and the climate of the time of the tale. As we spoke, that's about 9600 BCE is when Plato tells us that Atlantis was destroyed. And if you remember, one of our going in assumptions is the pieces of information that Plato tells us are true, are historically true, we're going to assume they are. So we're going to assume that he's right. And the date's 9600. Now that we've cleaned up continent, we have to tackle one more word 
that's part of all the translations that we're dealing with. When we look at the island of Atlantis in Greek, ancient Greek, this is what we see. Atlantis, Nisos. Nisos. Well, Nisos doesn't simply translate as island. That's how it's translated. And at first I thought this was a lazy translation, but when you look at kind of the rules and the methodology for translating from one language to another, you do try and be precise, and you try and have the translation fit into the, the style of language that you're going to, in this case English. So island's not a terrible translation sometimes, but without the context of what's being translated, is not always the best translation. Turns out when you research this word, Nisos, it has an uncertain origin. Traditionally, it's associated with the idea of swimming or I swim. It's associated with a piece of land, um, a headland, promontory, cape, island, or promontory, I don't know, headland, promontory, cape, island, peninsula, Basically, if you look at the last one, it's derived from the idea of nose. So think about this. It's, we have two dimensions. We'll say the first dimension is the person's lying flat on their back. Their nose is up in the air, right? So if you remember the beginning of Gilligan's Island, we see an island. Well, that's like someone's nose sticking up out of the water. So we have that view, but it's not two-dimensional. We can have the three-dimensional view or the side view, where if you look at a person's profile, and their nose is sticking out, that could be a peninsula, it could be a promontory, it could be a headland, it could be a cape, it could be an island, it could be whatever. So now when we go back to that quote, there was an island situated in the front of the strait, which are by you called the Pillars of Heracles. So this passage comes to, there was a point of high land that juts out into a large body of water you have to swim to, Situated in front of the straits, which you are, which are you by called Philip Hercules, or Heracles, sorry. Now, you have to swim to is interesting because if you dig even deeper into the roots of the word, later on, it also meant that it required a big boat to get to. So, the root of the word is based on you have to swim to it, that's very rudimentary. Later on, that same translation evolved from having to swim to to, you need a big boat to get to it. All makes sense. And all can accurately be an island, but an island is a very constrictive definition, and we need to make sure that we go in with our eyes wide open. All right, so here, the island or the continent was larger than Libya and Asia put together. Basically, when the Greeks are talking about Asia, they're basically talking about Asia Minor, or mostly Turkey. That's where the Persians lived. That was what they had to deal with. So when you look, and Libya wasn't quite as far into Africa, but it was more of the coast towards uh, Morocco and towards the Atlas Mountains from Egypt. Whatever, you can measure this lots of different ways. There's no way to be super precise, but when you get this square mileage of Asia Minor and Libya, it comes in just a hair under a million square miles. So we're going to use that designation. If something is larger than whatever they're talking about here, we're going to say it has to be larger than one million square miles, which is a pretty good interpretation and, um, and, and uh, quantification of this requirement. So 
The men of Atlantis have subjected the parts of Libya within the columns of Heracles as far as Egypt and of Europe as far as Cabrania. As a requirement, this means that the continent of Atlantis has to be geographically related to these places. It has to be close enough to Libya and Egypt and Greece and Europe to make sense, to make socioeconomic sense to wage war in those areas. Making every variety of food to spring up abundantly from the soil. This is just basically telling us that, and he talks a lot about, there's a lot of hints about agriculture. Um, in fact, there's a lot of dimensions given about the agriculture that we'll get to. But this is telling us that the continent of Atlantis was had a rich, fertile soil and had a good climate. And he named them all. The eldest, who was the first king, he named Atlas. And after him, the whole island and the ocean were called Atlantic. So that means the continent has to have some relationship to the Atlantic Ocean, and it should have some relationship to the name Atlas. They dug out of the earth whatever was to be found there, solid as well as fusile. And that which is now only a name, and was then something more than a name, or calcum was dug out of the earth in many parts. The continent should be rich in mineable mineral resources. Fusile simply means smelting formed by casting or melting, easily fused, like bronze. Bronze is a, uh, a fusile metal. It doesn't, you don't have to get it that hot to melt it and do things with it. So that's what they're telling us about for a calcum too. There were a great number of elephants on the island. So here, when we're looking for the continent, there should be some associations with elephants. And there should be association with elephants in enough abundance to be worth mentioning. They dug a canal around the whole of the plain that was 10,000 stadia in length. So this is talking about the agriculture, agricultural prowess, and it's talking about the plain where they grew stuff. Uh, it also tells us in another uh, section, I didn't include here, but it's really part of this one, I probably should have, that there were 60,000 10 by 10 stadia farms. That was the bulk of the population, the agrarian population. They go into lots of detail around what the farms did and how they fit into society. But for us, the 10,000, I'm sorry, 60,000 uh, 10 stadia by 10 stadia farms have to then be on a plane and the plane itself has to be able to support a canal that they had dug all the way around, a ditch they dug all the way around it, that measured in total 10,000 stadia in length. to get asked questions, which I appreciate. I like questions. One of the questions I've gotten a couple times is where do I think these videos are headed? What's the end game? Sometimes those questions come along with, well, just tell me the answer. And of course, we can't do that. We have to methodically work our way 
through the details, define the requirements, do the analysis, and reach a conclusion. But I still do know what we're building towards. We're building towards a grand, unified theory of Atlantis in the same way that Henrik Schliemann was able to come up with a grand, unifying theory of Troy. Our system is parallelized. When we're finished, we will have meticulously and scientifically examined all of the primary sources and done groundbreaking analysis of the different possible locations. But don't worry. I'm not going to leave you hanging. There's an answer. It's an elegant answer. And once presented, it's an obvious answer. The first additional requirement is that as we do our location analysis, we have to be sure that we are looking at that location through a lens that includes the time of the tale. Plato tells us Atlantis was destroyed in 9600 BCE. So for each location we look at as we evaluate it, we have to understand what was going on in 9600 BCE. He also tells us that the way to Atlantis was the way to the opposite continent. I think this is a groundbreaking and revolutionary statement. It tells us that in 3000 BCE, when the Atlantean myth was chiseled into the Temple of Neith at Saïs. It included the knowledge of an opposite continent. That right there is historic. And if we use my assumption to believe Plato, it's groundbreaking. I believe it's reasonable to ask, since there is an opposite continent, what the implications would be to dismissing that statement. So we will look at the way to the opposite continent as part of our analysis of both the kingdom and the religion of the capital city. Plato also tells us that it was accessible via the Atlantic Ocean. So any of the provinces, the kingdom of Atlantis, they all must be accessible via the Atlantic Ocean. Doesn't mean they have to be in the Atlantic Ocean or on it. But as you moved around the kingdom and you move through the Atlantic, that has to be the way to these places. It should include agricultural prowess. This is a long time in the past, over 11,000 years ago. But when we look at the location and the time and everything else, we should see, if nothing else, the potential for the massive farming that they were We'll also use the twin list, which has names in it, to see if we can phonetically or linguistically locate the names of any of the multiple provinces. And some of those provinces should be diving islands. Whatever that is, but it's what Plato tells us about. So let's dig into 9600 BCE. Some of this will be location dependent, so we can't do all of our analysis until we have picked a location to analyze. But generally speaking on the planet, 9600 BCE 
equate to the end of the last ice age and the end of what's called the Younger Dryas event. Now, what's interesting is there were actually three Dryases. The Younger Dryas, the Older Dryas, and the Oldest Dryas. One of the first things I had to find out, because I didn't know, was what's a Dryas? Well, it turns out it's a type of flowering plant that does really well at higher elevations in colder weather. Interestingly, the Dryas is also named after the Greek Dryads, the tree nymphs, from ancient Greek mythology, which is, I believe, a completely tangential coincidence, but it's also interesting that, some, that the name from ancient Greek mythology is what we use in current academics to denote the end of the last ice age, which ties to the end of Atlantis, and we get the Atlantis story through a different set of ancient Greek documents. I just find that interesting. At this time, the world was in, in the Neolithic period. Neolithic just means new, neo, and lithic. Stone age, new stone age, or lithic means more relating to stones. So something new about stones. This particular period in the Mediterranean region is also associated with what they call the pre-pottery Neolithic, which is, just simply means what it says. It's, it's the Neolithic period before people figured out that you could cook dirt, get dirt wet and cook it, and make pots out of it. So all their tools and all their pots and everything were made out of stone. The other thing that is really interesting about this time period is that we're involved in what they call the first agricultural revolution, exactly at this time period. Plato tells us the Atlanteans were very good at agriculture, and historically, main, the mainstream view is that 9600 BCE was in, we are in the first agricultural revolution. Interesting. We're going to examine the twin names. When we're looking for the kingdom of Atlantis, if we find a location that seems to exhibit evidence of something going on in 9600 BCE, but we can't line it up to the Atlantean capital that we have a lot of information on, the next step will be to look at these names and do phonetic and linguistic analysis to see if there's a location that fits as a problem. One of the last things to clean up as we finish our requirements gathering phase is this idea of Atlantis being advanced, advanced technology, advanced something. So how does that concept of advanced, given what Plato says in the dialogues, fit into the views of traditional historians? That's the question we have to answer. Specifically, we're talking about agricultural, and, and maybe they're advanced in agriculture. Plato spends time talking about how they've organized themselves. They seem to be advanced organizationally. He talks about a lot of agricultural prowess. He mentions 60,000 10 by 10 stadia farms. Uh, we'll, we'll do another video on what a stadia is. Just know 10 stadia is about a mile. So those would be 60,000 one mile square farm plots. But it also tells us the Atlanteans were very good at controlling the flow of water. 
They dug a massive irrigation ditch. One of the ditches was 10,000 stadiums. A lot of ditch. And the last thing, I don't know how we can use this in analysis, but it's one of the last things I pulled out when it came to the word advanced, is that whatever else was going on, the Atlanteans were not very good at war. Well, they were able to conquer Libya and Egypt and parts of Europe. They couldn't beat the Greeks. And in 9600 BCE, these aren't the Greeks that we think of when we see movies and TV shows. These are basically proto-Greeks. So very early civilizations were able to beat the Atlanteans. So the Atlanteans were very good at agriculture. They're probably advanced. They seem to be advanced in how they structured their society. But they were not overly advanced at war. That wasn't. That doesn't seem to be what they were good at. And those three statements are all supported by the Platonic dialogues. Thank you for sticking with me through the requirements analysis. I know it was a little tedious and we're wading through waters that other people have been through already. But I think it's important for us to take a clean look at this and to have done the analysis ourselves as opposed to us picking a source and using a third party to tell us what the dialogues say. Instead, we just went through them and we've now derived our own list uh, firsthand from the primary source. So the question becomes, where do we look? I think it'd be naive to ignore all of the locations that people have identified as having characteristics that lead some people to believe that location is the lost, I guess, lost city. That seems to be what they look for. They tend to look for the city. So I've collected a list of 12 places that seem to be the ones that are most popular as locations for Atlantis. If you notice a location up here that would fit on this map somewhere that I don't have, please let me know. It's going to take a while to get through all of these and do the analysis, so there's plenty of time to add an additional location or two in as we go through this. We're going to start with the ones that are closest to Greece, Santorini, Crete, and Malta. Then we'll move out into um, the ones that are closest to the Strait of Gibraltar. So Cadiz, uh, the Seuss Mesa, the Rishas, Thresher, Canary Islands, and the Azores. And then we'll look at the ones that are probably too far away to be the capital city. So these would be candidates for some of those provinces that we talked about ruled by the sets of twins. Well, not, they're, not, they're not ruled in sets of twins, but they're ruled by twins who were born in sets because they're twins. And that's Doggerland, Antarctica, Bimini, and Aslan. I know Aslan is actually farther west, but I, it was hard to, to land on the size of the map that allows us to see all of these. If you notice something missing, please let me know. There's plenty of time to add it in. I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to test the seafaring navigation routes that we can project back into this time period. I've looked at the generic trade routes as they emerged through the 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries, and I'll show you a generalized version of those. First, though, I wanted to see if I could find 
the first time, and the only first time I could find is Columbus. Now, I know we can argue that Columbus didn't, isn't the first seafarer to discover North America, but I'm not arguing that. I just want to see, for someone who didn't know how to get there but was using all the information they could gather, what routes did they take? One of the things that people tend to forget is Columbus sailed to the New World four different times. So here we can look at the way he went each time. And what happens is, as he learns the tides and he learns the currents and he learns how to get there, he continues to make his route farther south, which I think we can use to denote the zones that we're looking for of an Atlantean empire. We're told the capital city is directly outside of the street the Strait of Heracles, which we interpret as the Strait of Gibraltar. So directly is an ambiguous term, but it's not a completely meaningless term. I've drawn three zones here that we can use um, to interpret that word directly, with obviously zone one being the most directly, zone two kind of directly, and zone three arguably directly. So I think the locations that line up in these zones are the ones that we will at least start with our analysis of the capital city, trying to find that. You know, another important point is that this isn't a game of winners and losers. So we don't have this idea of someone's going to win if the place they think is Atlantis is also the location of the capital city. Atlantis is a big word. It was a big kingdom, and it can mean a lot of things. Is no reason to believe that the provinces that Plato mentions were any less advanced, whatever advanced means, um, than the capital city was. We just have to start putting some milestones down, some markers down, so that we can figure out exactly what he's talking about. Because if we can find the capital, if that exists, then it's reasonable to assume that those provinces exist. And if the provinces exist and the capital exists, and we found stuff at all these locations that points back to Atlantis, then all of these locations are in the kingdom of Atlantis, and they're one of those named provinces in the twins list. We just have to figure all this out. So that's how we're going to go about organizing all of these locations that we look at. I'm excited to get started. I hope you are too. First up, let's do Crete. towards is called a grand unified theory of Atlantis. One of the items we have to overcome as we examine all the different potential locations is what is called the fool's choice. The fool's choice is when you are presented with a question and believe that the answer is selecting one of many possibilities. It's called the fool's choice because in the answer, you believe that you cannot consider all of the potential answers, all of the possibilities, but that you have to pick one. If you remember, this was exactly the type of thinking, the fool's choice, that we came up against when we were doing our Critias analysis. And for thousands of years, scholars have been forcing a fool's choice when it comes to identifying which Critias is speaking. 
people have tried to assume it's either Critias the grandfather or Critias the tyrant. The answer, of course, is that it, one dialogue is one of them and the other dialogue is the other of them. That was a fool's choice, and we've all fallen for it. So I'm going to introduce here in our Grand Unified Theory of Atlantis the Critias Clause. And the Critias Clause is basically how we're going to combat that fool's choice. Basically, when confronted with a choice between A or B, we are also going to consider A and B. It might seem obvious to do this, but if you think about it, if you enter into any conversation with someone who has passion for Atlantis, what's going to happen is they're going to think it's location A. If you don't agree with them, you think it's location B. You will then argue because the belief is it can only be location A or location B. Atlantis was three things. It was a city, a continent, and a kingdom. So why do we insist on trying to find Atlantis? What, what do we even mean when we say that word Atlantis? Usually what I hear is they're applying the concept of the continent and kingdom to the city. It's a really weird way of looking at things. Atlantis is at least ten different places. We know that. It's a, it's a capital city and nine provinces, ten, ten locations total. So when we look for Atlantis, we're going to try and identify whether it was a capital city or one of the provinces. The other thing I realize we need to clean up is the unit of measure that's being used in the dialogue. It's this thing called a stadia. There is some arguable confusion. Yeah, that's not the right word. You can choose a couple different values for stadia depending on how you decide to ground the dialogue. We're going to ground the dialogue along its common sense and, and obvious nature, meaning Plato wrote during a time when the Greek stadia was 606.9 feet, when it was 607 feet. This became the what they call the Alexandrian measure from Alexander the Great. Both Plato and Alexander the Great lived at the same time. Plato was a lot older, Alexander was a lot younger, but they think they had 12 years of overlap. And then this measurement of a stadia went on through Roman times to kind of hold it at 607 feet. So that's what we're going to use here. So the first unit of measure we need to convert is a tool that we're going to use to identify all these different locations, whether it's a candidate for the capital city or a candidate for one of the provinces. And there was a line that I presented in one of the earlier videos that is very rarely used, but I think it's the perfect benchmark for us to use as a geographic identifier on whether a place could be the capital city or not. And that's this quote here. It says, the country immediately about and surrounding the city was a level plain, itself surrounded by mountains, which descended towards the sea. It was smooth and even, and of an oblong shape, extending in the one direction 3,000 stadia. So we're going to use that 3,000 stadia. So we have to convert that into some unit of measure we can use. I'm going to convert it into miles because I'm sitting here in Florida and America and we use miles. So if you do the math, you multiply 3,000 times 607 feet, then you divide that by a mile, which is 5,280 feet, and what you end up with, rounded, is 345 miles. That means projecting back in time and taking the sea levels during the last ice age into account, 
which we have tools to do, and we will do that as we look at these different locations, we have to find a landmass that could have a 345-mile gentle slope towards the sea with mountains on one side. That is the criteria for the landmass that the capital city sits in. So if we can't find that landmass in the places we're looking, then it's, we're not going to do the capital city analysis because there's no point. So up first, we're going to look at Crete. The first thing I did is I went to a flood map, and I lowered the sea level by 400 feet, which is uh, kind of the average standard that academics believe the sea was um, lowered, 400 feet, which is 125 meters, which is what you're seeing here. That's how far down they think the sea level was at the peak of the last ice age. What you find on these maps is, when you're looking at this, the, the darker blue or the kind of purple, that's water, and then the light blue that you see, we see a lot of it over by uh, Mali and Sicily, um, and some on the lower African coast, lower left-hand side. Uh, that light blue is land that would be exposed if the sea was 400 feet lower that is currently underwater. So when we're looking at Crete, which is that island uh, right above um, my head, kind of up and to the left just a little bit, you can see that uh, there's a little bit more blue, so I know it was zoomed out pretty good. Uh, but this that doesn't add a tremendous amount of new land. No, no substantial land masses come, um, become exposed. And also notice that it's not like there's some land bridge to Crete or anything. In order to get to this island, even during the last ice age, you're going to have to traverse water. Crete's also a good one to start with because, honestly, any documentary or book or almost everything you see on the Atlantis almost, starts, almost always starts with Crete, so it feels like we ought to start there, too. Uh, the only difference being that we are coming in looking for Atlantis with both a capital A and a little a. We ha we're looking for the capital city, which would be the capital A Atlantis, and then we're looking for all of those provinces. There's nine provinces. Crete becomes intriguing because it checks almost all of the boxes, almost all of the boxes. There, there's, when, when you watch the documentaries, when I've watched people explain Crete, they can also almost, they can usually almost line the whole thing up, but then at the very end it becomes unfrazzled because they're looking for dates around 900 BCE instead of 9000 BCE. What's interesting about Crete, though, is that it's established Academic knowledge is mainstream. The mainstream view is that it has been habitated by people for 130,000 years. And I showed you the Mediterranean around Crete with the sea level lowered 400 feet, which would be the level of the last ice age. There's no land bridge to Crete. You're not getting there by walking. You're getting there by boat. So 130,000 years ago, there were people on Crete the only implication of that, not the only one, a, main, a major implication of that is that if there were people there, they had to have gotten there by boat. They didn't swim. It's too far to swim. The other interesting thing is on Crete, we see a Neolithic farming culture, and it's firmly established as far back as 7,000 BCE. There's also evidence of an earlier culture that that farming culture replaced, 
And then around 3000 BCE, we see the Minoans. We see that culture come into that Neolithic farming culture on Crete. So continuous occupation, we can look back and see these cultures. The other interesting thing, one of the other interesting things about the Minoans is there's two sets of scripts, what they call Minoan script, and also Linear A, which both, uh, they believe, uh, the uh, preceders of Linear B. Linear B has been deciphered. Minoan script and Linear A still have not been deciphered. So we have writing uh, that we find on Crete that we cannot read and dates far back into the past before any known other writing. We also know that um, Crete has been occupied for at least 130,000 years. When we look at it, there's clearly a bulk culture. There is something exotic about the culture that we see on Crete. It's a high culture, and it seems very mature. There are well-documented ruins there. The climate in 9600 BCE was a good climate, just like it is today. And Crete is accessible via the Mediterranean from the Atlantic, which was one of our criteria. However, there are some real problems with Crete being the Atlantean capital. It's really too close to the world that Plato knew. It's too close to Egypt. It's not outside the Strait of Gibraltar. There's some arguments that there are other straits that could be interpreted as the Strait of Heracles. But Crete, it's actually it's part of Greece, and geographically it's so close, Plato would have known about it, and he wouldn't have told us, uh, he wouldn't have used Crete, he wouldn't have described Crete to us while telling us he was telling us a true story or something farther in the past. We also have the challenge of the landmass, and I mentioned I'm going to use this 345 mile um, slope to the sea, and even with the lowered uh, sea levels, there's just not enough room in the Mediterranean for any of these Mediterranean locations to have been the capital city. Does that mean Crete wasn't Atlantis? Of course it does not mean that. It, this is where everyone else has kind of gotten to this, and they say, well, it's not the capital, so it's not Atlantis. Maybe Santorini is, which, of course, is, Santorini is ridiculously close to, um, to Crete. Well, it's not. This is the, the dialogue. If we're, if we're literally taking Plato as true, and he tells us that there's a 3,000 stadia gently sloping plain to the sea that the city sat on, then we have to be able to find that. And we just can't find that at Crete. Having said that, I think there's still a really good chance that Crete was part of the Atlantean Kingdom, which means Crete is part of Atlantis, which means if we keep looking at this, Crete might be part of Atlantis with a little a. As I was putting the images together for this video and going through my notes, I had forgotten, but I've highlighted it here. There are some very, very strange underwater formations to the south of Crete. They look to me exactly like the early LIDAR images we're getting out of the Amazon, where it's potentially something that, in this case, is under the seafloor, under silt. It's been submerged. The scope of it is substantial. That the 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 area I have highlighted is um, dozens and dozens of miles across. Also, when I lowered the sea level by 400 feet, this area is still underwater. You have to lower the sea level by something like 400 meters to start to get this area above water. So I have no idea what it is, 
But it, it is so regimentally laid out that it certainly does seem like something. So in our analysis, there is a road that was built. A history of Atlantis. Outside to the Central Island where the palace was. What they're talking about now is how they divided the zones of land, the rings of land, um, so that boats could get all the way from the outside to all the way to the inside. They've dug the channel. We've seen that. Now they cut other channels into the zones. And then he's telling us that when they did it, they built basically bridges. They built bridges over the water, and they made sure that a, a trireme could get through, a boat could get through. But the clue here is it says they covered over the channels so as to leave a way underneath for the ship. <clears throat> you cover over the channel to make it passable so the people can walk all the way around the ring. So if you look at this and you're a person, you can go all the way around the circumference of the ring, or you can walk over to the road and walk in towards the central palace. So as a pedestrian, as a person on foot, which is everyone, this is telling us the infrastructure that was put in place so that you could navigate, you could walk around with your feet and get everywhere you needed to go. Now the largest of the zones into which a passage was cut from the sea was three stadia in breadth, and the zone of land which came next of equal breadth, but the next two zones, the one of water, the other of land, were two stadia, and the one which surrounded the central island was a stadium only in width. So now when we get to this statement, it makes a whole lot more sense because we've been able to organize and figure out the difference between the road, the canal, and the channels they cut, and then the bridges that they cut over them. So here, what we're being told is the width of these channels. How much distance did those bridges have to cover? And we're basically told that there are a couple of them in the outer ring, and there are three stadia each. The ones in the middle ring are two stadia, and the one closest to the central capital island, the palace, is one stadia. The stone which was used in the work they quarried from underneath the center island and from underneath the zones on the outer as well as the inner side. One kind was white, another black, and a third red. This is a fairly straightforward one. It's telling us that wherever the capital city is, the stones that are around them are white, black, and red. So we should be able to find white, black, and red stones near the capital city in enough quantity to have been used for construction. This part of the island looked towards the south and was sheltered from the north. This one's fairly straightforward. It gives us the orientation of the city. It tells us that whatever is in the north could be like mountains or hills or something that shelters the city. And then the southern part is open. That implies that all these canals and all the stuff there they've been talking about are on the southern side, which is why it's been drawn that way. The country immediately about and surrounding the city was a level plain itself surrounded by mountains which descended towards the sea. It was smooth and even and of an oblong shape, extending in the one direction 3,000 stadia. This is another requirement that might be difficult to understand or to find. And it's hard to know exactly what it's saying here. But I believe it's telling us that the topology that the capital city is on 
is going to need to be big enough to be on a plane of at least 3,000 stadia in one direction. There might be more to it, though. We'll see. The water in those parts is impassable and impenetrable because there is a shoal of mud in the way, and this was caused by the subsidence of the land. The way I read this one with the shawl of mud, to me, suggests that there must be some type of constriction to the waterway leading up to the capital city. The open ocean is not going to be blocked by a shawl of mud. A shawl of mud is going to need uh, a, a narrow entrance or, or an area, a river, or some entrance between mountains or, between two, or something that can be blocked in a meaningful, in reasonable way. The earth has fallen away all around and sunk out of sight. The consequence is that in comparison of what then was, there are remaining only the bones of the wasted body, as they may be called, as in the case of small islands, all the richer and softer parts of the soil having fallen away and the mere skeleton of the land being left. I've included this one. You've probably never heard that line from the prettiest dialogue before. He is not specifically speaking about the capital city. Instead, this is a portion okay? of the dialogue where the characters are trying to explain the magnitude of Chiki, the get out of there. destruction hey, hey, and the uh, or the catastrophe <laughs> that happened. Lemon. But I think it's a very descriptive line that can help us as a nice to have. We can't use it as a primary requirement, but if we find locations for the capital city that also show signs of devastation, that will help. So there it is. There are 12 core requirements for a location to match it's fascinating that there's only 12. Now, obviously, the capital city is going to have to sit on a landmass that matches the continent, and it's going to have to also meet the requirements of the kingdom. These are requirements that we have to now still derive from the dialogue. But in all of the dialogues, in all of the thousands of years of people looking for Atlantis, the capital city, these are the only 12 clues that we have. Oye, dame mi zapato. Oh, okay. ¿Por qué te llevaste mi zapato? I don't know. No lo sé, nada. It was me. We're dealing with a translated document in the Platonic Dialogues, Timaeus and Critias. And we're dealing with translations sometimes that are hundreds of years old. The definition of words can drift and can be imprecise. We have to carefully define the terms that we use and make sure that we're not carrying unwarranted biases into our assumptions about those words. Since this video is about the Atlantean continent, one of the first things we have to define is what a continent is. There is no okay. strict definition for a continent. It turns out a continent is defined by convention rather than any strict criteria. A continent is just a large, continuous mass of land. 
considered a region. It's a contrivance, a convention. This means when we consider the Atlantean continent, we have to understand that it's not as precise a definition as we would like, and it's more of a convention. In addition to the specific meanings of words, we also must make sure that we're considering the geography and the climate of the time of the tale. As we spoke, that's about 9600 BCE, when Plato tells us that Atlantis was destroyed. If you remember, one of our going in assumptions is for the pieces of information that Plato tells us are true, are historically true, we're going to assume they are. So we're going to assume that he's right in the dates 9600. It's, it's here. No. Now it's here. 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 It's doesn't simply translate as island. That's how it's translated. And of course, I thought this was a lazy translation. But when you look at kind of the rules and the methodology for translating from one language to another, you do try and be precise, and you try and have the translation into the style of language that you're going to. In this so island's not a terrible translation sometimes. But without the context of what's being translated, it's not always the best translation. Turns out when you research this word, it has an uncertain origin. Traditionally, it's associated with the idea of swimming, or I swim. It's associated with a piece of land. Um, a headland, promontory, cape, island. It's like comida para los pollitos. Headland, promontory, island, peninsula. Basically, if you look at the last one, it's derived from the idea of nose. So think about that. No word. No, no, no. The first one was on their back. Their nose is up in the air. Right, so if you remember the beginning of Gilligan's Island, we've seen an island, and that's like someone's nose sticking up out of the water. So we have that view, but it's not two-dimensional. We can have the three-dimensional view or the side view, where you look at a person's profile, and their nose is sticking out. That could be a peninsula, it could be a promontory, it could be a headland, it could be a cape, it could be an island, it could be whatever. So now when we go back to that quote, there was an island situated in the front of the street, which are by you called the Pillars of Heracles. So this passage comes to, there was a point of high land that juts out into a large body of water you have to swim to, situated in front of the strait, which you are, which are you by called or Heracles, sorry. Now, you have to swim to, it's interesting, because if you dig even deeper into the roots of the word, later on, it also meant that it required a big Yeah, maybe in, uh, in the afternoon. So, the root of the word is based on, you have to swim to it, that's very rudimentary. Later on, that same translation evolved from having to swim to, you need a big boat to get to it. All makes sense. And all can accurately be an island, but an island is a very constrictive definition, and we need to make sure that we go in with our eyes wide open.
Right, so here the island or the continent was larger than Libya and Asia put together. Basically, when the Greeks are talking about Asia, they're basically talking about Asia Minor or mostly Turkey. That's where the Persians lived. That was what they had to deal with. So when you look, and Libya wasn't quite as far into Africa, but it was more of the coast towards uh, Morocco and towards the Atlas Mountains from Egypt. When it, you can measure this lots of different ways. There's no way to be super precise, but when you get the square mileage of Asia Minor and Libya, it comes in just a hair under a million square miles. So we're going to use that designation. If something is larger than whatever they're talking about here, we're going to say it has to be larger than one million square miles, which is a pretty good interpretation and, um, and, and uh, quantification of this requirement. The men of Atlantis has subjected the parts of Libya within the columns of Heracles as far as Egypt and of Europe as far as the As a requirement, this means that the continent of Atlantis has to be geographically related to these places. It has to be close enough to Libya and Egypt and Greece and Europe to make sense to make socio-economic sense to wage war in those areas. I don't know where you put it. Where don't they don't they Don't they pone? Making every variety of food to spring up abundantly it's from the soil. I, I this pero, is basically telling us uh, no, that no, no, no. we talk a lot about, there's a lot of hints about agriculture. That's um, no, that's local, idea local. about the agriculture that we'll get to. But this is telling us that the contents of Atlantis was a rich, fertile soil and had a good climate. And after him, the whole island and the ocean were called Atlantic. So that means the continent has to have some relationship to the Atlantic Ocean, and it should have some relationship to the Atlantic Ocean. They dug out of the earth, whatever was found the and that which is now only a name and was it's then something more than a name. Grow legs and walk away. Was dug out of the earth in many parts. The continent should be rich <clears> in mineable mineral resources. Fusile you put it? Donde, donde pone? Usted. Es usted. Pone donde? Donde pone su zapato? Keep track of your own shoes. Keep track. There were a great number of elephants on the island. Where'd you put it? Donde pones? So here when we're looking for the continent. Yeah, you did it. It's the elephant. And there should be associated with elephants. It's not worth mentioning. Aha. Found it. They dug a canal around the whole plain that was 10,000 stadia in There you go. So this is talking about the agricultural, agricultural prowess. It's talking about the plain where they grew stuff. Uh, it also tells us in another uh, section, I didn't include here, but it's really part of this one, I probably should have, that there were 60,000 10 by 10 stadia That was the bulk of the population, there was an agrarian population. Ten thousand, sorry, sixty thousand uh, ten stadia by ten stadia farms 
has to then be on a plane, and the plane itself has to be able to support a canal okay. that they had dug all the way around, a ditch they dug all the way around it, that measured in total 10,000 feet in length. We can, we, yeah, we'll, we will go. Starting to get asked questions, which I appreciate. I like that. One of the questions I've gotten a couple times is where do I think these videos are headed? Here's some fruta. Don't this fruta. We need to get you some fruit. Sometimes those questions come along with, well, just tell me the answer. And of course, we can't do that. We have to methodically work our way through the details, define the requirements, do the analysis, and reach a conclusion. But I still do know what we're building towards. We're building towards a grand, unified theory of Atlantis in the same way that Henrik Schliemann was able to come up with a grand, unifying theory of Troy. I view them as parallel. When we're finished, we will have meticulously and scientifically examined all of the primary sources and done groundbreaking analysis of the different possible locations. But don't worry. I'm not going to leave you hanging. There's an answer. It's an elegant answer. And once presented, it's an obvious answer. The first additional requirement is that as we do our location analysis, we have to be sure that we are looking at that location through a lens that includes the time of the tale. Plato tells us Atlantis was destroyed in 9600 BCE. So for each location we look at as we evaluate it, we have to understand what was going on in 9600 BCE. He also tells us that the way to Atlantis was the way to the opposite continent. I think this is a groundbreaking and revolutionary statement. It tells us that in 3000 BCE, when the Atlantean myth was chiseled into the Temple of Neith at Sais, it included the knowledge of an opposite continent. That right there is historic. And if we use my assumption to believe Plato, it's groundbreaking. I believe it's reasonable to ask, since there is an opposite continent, what the implications would be to dismissing that statement. So we will look at the way to the opposite continent as part of our analysis of both the kingdom and when we're looking for the capital city. Plato also tells us that it was accessible via the Atlantic Ocean. So any of the provinces, the kingdom of Atlantis, they all must be accessible via the Atlantic Ocean doesn't mean they have to be in the Atlantic Ocean or on it, but as you moved around the kingdom and you moved through the Atlantic, that has to be the way to these places. It should include agricultural prowess. This is a long time in the past, over 11,000 years ago. But when we look at the location and the time and everything else, 
we should see, if nothing else, the potential for the massive farming that Plato talks about. We'll also use the twin list, which has names in it, to see if we can phonetically or linguistically locate the names of any of the multiple provinces. And some of those provinces should be diving islands. Whatever that is, that is what Plato tells us about. into 9600 BCE. Some of this will be location dependent, so we can't do all of our analysis until we have picked a location to analyze. But generally on the planet, 9600 BCE equates to the end of the last ice age and the end of what's called the Younger Dryas event. Now what's interesting is there were actually three Dryases. The Younger Dryas, the Older Dryas, and the Oldest Dryas. One of the first things I had to find out, because I didn't know, was what's a dryas? Well, it turns out it's, it's a plant. type of flowering plant that does really well at higher elevations in colder weather. Interestingly, the dryas is also named after the Greek dryad, the tree nymph. It's amazing Greek mythology, which is, I believe, it's a completely tangential coincidence, but it's also interesting that some that the name from ancient Greek mythology is what we use in current academics to denote the end of the last ice age, which ties to the end of Atlantis, and we get the Atlantis story through a different set of ancient Greek documents. I just find that interesting. At this time, the world was in, in the Neolithic period. Neolithic just means new, neo, and lithic. Stone Age, New Stone Age, or Lithic means more relating to stone. So something new about stone. This particular period in the Mediterranean region is also associated with what they call the pre-pottery Neolithic, which is just simply means what it says. It's, it's the Neolithic period before people figured out that you could cook dirt, get dirt wet, and cook it, and make pots out of it. So all the tools and all their pots and everything were made out of stone. The other thing that is really interesting about this time period is that we are involved in what they call the first agricultural revolution, exactly at this time period. Plato tells us the Atlanteans were very good at agriculture, and historically, the mainstream view is that 9600 BCE was in, we are in the first agricultural revolution. Interesting. We're going to examine the twin names. When we're looking for the kingdom of Atlantis, if we find a location that seems to exhibit evidence of something going on in 9600 BCE, but we can't line it up to the Atlantean capital that we have a lot of information on, the next step will be to look at these names and do phonetic and linguistic analysis to see if there's a location that as a province. One of the last things to clean up as we finish our requirements gathering phase is this idea of Atlantis being advanced. 
advanced technology, advanced something. So how does that concept of advanced, given what Plato says in the dialogues, fit into the views of traditional historians? That's the question we have to answer. Specifically, we're talking about agricultural, and, and maybe they're advanced in agriculture. Plato spends time talking about how they organize themselves. So they seem to be advanced organizationally. He talks about a lot of agricultural prowess. He mentions 60,000 10 by 10 stadia farms. Uh, we'll, we'll do another video on what a stadia is. Just know 10 stadia is about a mile. So those would be 60,000 one mile square farm plots. Plato also tells us the Atlanteans were very good at controlling the flow of water. They dug a massive irrigation ditch. One of their ditches was 10,000 stadia. It's a, a lot of ditch. And the last thing, I don't know how we can use this in analysis, but it's one of the last things I pulled out when it came to the word advance, is that whatever else was going on, the Atlanteans were not very good at war. While they were able to conquer Libya, Egypt and parts of Europe, they couldn't beat the Greeks. And in 9600 BCE, these aren't the Greeks that we think of when we see movies and TV shows. These are basically proto-Greeks. So very early civilizations were able to beat the Atlanteans. So the Atlanteans were very good at agriculture. They're probably advanced. They seem to be advanced in how they structured their society. But they were not overly advanced at war. That wasn't. That doesn't seem to be what they were good at, and those three statements are all supported by the Platonic dialogues. for sticking with me through the requirements analysis. I know it was a little tedious and we're wading through waters that other people have been through already. But I think it's important for us to take a clean look at this and to have done the analysis ourselves as opposed to a picking a source and using a third party to tell us what the dialogues say. Instead, we just went through them and we've now derived our own list uh, firsthand from the primary source. So the question becomes, where do we look? I think it'd be naive to ignore all of the locations that people have identified as having characteristics that lead some people to believe that location is the lost, I guess lost city. That seems to be what they look for. They tend to look for the city. So I've collected a list of 12 places that seem to be the ones that are most popular as locations for Atlantis. If you notice a location up here that would fit on this map somewhere that I don't have, please let me know. It's going to take a while to get through all of these and do the analysis, so there's plenty of time to add an additional location or two in as we go through this. We're going to start with the ones that are closest to Greece, Santorini, Crete, and Malta. Then we'll move out into um, the ones that are closest to the Strait of Gibraltar. So Cadiz, uh, the Seuss Mesa, the Rorschach Pressure, Canary Islands, and the Azores. And then we'll look at the ones that are probably too far away to be the capital city. So these would be candidates for some of those provinces that we talked about ruled by the sets of twins. Uh, well, not 
They're not, not ruled in sets of twins, but they're ruled by twins who were born in sets because they're twins. And that's Doggerland, Antarctica, Bimini, and Aslan. I know Aslan is actually farther west, but I, it was hard to, to land on the size of the map that allowed us to see all of these. If you notice something missing, please let me know. There's plenty of time to add it. Hi, Butternut. Hi, Pudgepacker. I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to test the seafaring navigation route that we can project back into this time period. I've looked at the generic trade routes as they emerged through the 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries, and I'll show you a generitized version of those. First, though, I wanted to see if I could find the first time. And the only first time I could find is Columbus. Now, I know we can argue that Columbus didn't, isn't the first seafarer to discover North America, so I'm not arguing that. I just want to see, for someone who didn't know how to get there, but was using all the information they could gather, what routes did they take? One of the things that people tend to forget is Columbus sailed to the New World four different times. So here we can look at the way he went each time. And what happens is, as he learns the tides, and he learns the currents, and he learns how to get there, he continues to make his route farther south, which I think we can use to denote the zones that we're looking for of an Atlantean empire. We're told the capital city is directly outside of the street, the Strait of Heracles, which we interpret as the Strait of Gibraltar. So directly is an ambiguous term, but it's not a completely meaningless term. I've drawn three zones here that we can use um, to interpret that word directly, with obviously zone one being the most directly, zone two kind of directly, and zone three arguably directly. So I think the locations that line up in these zones are the ones that we will at least start with our analysis of the capital city okay, guys. trying to find Everybody that. outside. You know, another important point is that this isn't a game of winners and losers. So we don't have this idea of someone's going to win if the place they think is Atlantis is also the location of the capital city. Atlantis is a big word. It was a big kingdom. And it can mean a lot of things. There's no reason to believe that the provinces that Plato mentions were any less advanced, whatever advanced means, um, than the capital city was. We just have to start putting some milestones down, some markers down, so that we can figure out exactly what he's talking about. Because if we can find the capital, if that exists, then it's reasonable to assume that those provinces exist. And if the provinces exist, and the capital exists, and we found stuff at all these locations that points back to Atlantis, then all of these locations are in the kingdom of Atlantis, and they're one of those named provinces in the twins list. We just have to figure all this out. So that's how we're going to go about organizing all of these locations that we look at. I'm excited to get started. I hope you are, too. First up, let's do Crete. Okay, everybody out. Out, out, out. Shh, 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 shh. 
What we're working towards is called a grand unified theory of Atlantis. One of the items we have to overcome is to examine all the different potential locations is what too, is called buddy. the fool's choice. Yep. The fool's choice is when you are presented with a question Go outside and, play. and believe that the answer is selecting one of many possibilities. It's called the fool's choice because in the answer, you believe that you cannot consider all of the potential answers, all the possibilities, but that you have to pick one. If you remember, this was exactly the type of thinking, the fool's choice, that we came up against when we were doing our prettiest analysis. And for thousands of years, scholars have been forcing a fool's choice when it comes to identifying which Critias is speaking. People have tried to assume it's either Critias the grandfather or Critias the tyrant. The answer, of course, is that it, one dialogue is one of them and the other dialogue is the other of them. That was a fool's choice, and we've all fallen for it. So I'm going to introduce here in our Grand Unified Theory of Atlantis the Critias Clause. And the Critias Clause is basically how we're going to combat that fool's choice. Basically, when confronted with a choice between A or B, we are also going to consider A and B. It might seem obvious to do this, but if you think about it, if you enter into any conversation with someone who has passion for Atlantis, what's going to happen is they're going to think it's location A. If you don't agree with them, you think it's location B. You will then argue, because the belief is it can only be location A or location B. Atlantis was three things. It was a city, a continent, and a kingdom. So, so why do we insist on trying to find Atlantis? What, what do we even mean when we say that word Atlantis? Usually what I hear is they're applying the concept of the continent and kingdom to the city. It's a really weird way of looking at things. Atlantis is at least ten different places. We know that. It's a, it's a capital city and nine provinces, ten, ten locations total. So when we look for Atlantis, we're going to try and identify whether it was the capital city or one of the provinces. The other thing I realized we need to clean up is the unit of measure that's being used in the dialogue. It's this thing called a stadia. There is some arguable confusion yeah, that's not the right word. You can choose a couple different values for stadia depending on how you decide to ground the dialogue. We're going to ground the dialogue along its common sense and, and obvious nature. Meaning, Plato wrote during a time when the Greek stadia was 606.9 feet, when it called 607 feet. This became the, what they call the Alexandrian Major from Alexander the Great. Both Plato and Alexander the Great lived at the same time. Plato was a lot older, Alexander was a lot younger, but they think they had 12 years of overlap. And then this measurement of a stadia went on through Roman times to kind of hold it at 607 feet. So that's what we're going to use here. So the first unit of measure we need to convert is a tool that we're going to use to identify all these different locations, whether it's a candidate for the capital city, or candidate for one of the provinces. And there was a line that I presented in one of the earlier videos that is very rarely used, but I think it's the perfect benchmark 
for us to use as a geographic identifier on whether a place could be the capital city or not. And that's this quote here. It says, the country immediately about and surrounding the city was a level plain, itself surrounded by mountains, which descended towards the sea. It was smooth and even, and of an oblong shape, extending in the one direction, 3,000 stadia. So we're going to use that 3,000 stadia. So we have to convert that into some unit of measure we can use. I'm going to convert it into miles, because I'm sitting here in Florida, in America, and we use miles. So if you do the math, you multiply 3,000 times 607 feet, then you divide that by a mile, which is 5,280 feet. And what you end up with, grounded, is 345 miles. That means projecting back in time and taking the sea levels during the last ice age into account, which we have tools to do, and we will do that as we look at these different locations. We have to find a landmass that could have a 345-mile gentle slope towards the sea with mountains on one side. That is the criteria for the landmass that the capital city sits in. So if we can't find that landmass in the places we're looking, then this, we're not going to do the capital city analysis because there's no point. So up first, we're going to look at Crete. The first thing I did is I went to a flood map and I lowered the sea level by 400 feet, which is uh, kind of the average standard that academics believe the sea was um, lowered 400 feet, which is 125 meters, which is what you're seeing here. That's how far down they think the sea level was at the peak of the last ice age. What you find on these maps is, when you're looking at this, the, the darker blue or the kind of purple, that's water. And then the light blue that you see, we see a lot of it over by uh, Mali and Sicily, um, and some on the lower African coast, lower left-hand side. Uh, that light blue is land that would be exposed if the sea was 400 feet lower that is currently underwater. So when we're looking at Cree, which is that island uh, right above um, my head, kind of up and to the left just a little bit, you can see that uh, there's a little bit more blue, so I know it's blue zoomed out pretty good. Uh, but this, this doesn't add a tremendous amount of new land. No, no substantial land masses come, um, become exposed. And also notice that it's not like there's some land bridge to treat or anything. In order to get to this island, even during the last ice age, you're going to have to traverse water. What's up, Chukar? Crete's also a good one to start with because, honestly, any documentary or book or almost everything you see on Atlantis, it almost starts, almost always starts with Crete, so it feels like we ought to start there too. Uh, the only difference being that we are coming in looking for Atlantis with both a capital A and a little a. We have, we're looking for the capital city, which would be the capital A, Atlantis. And then we're looking for all of those provinces. There's nine provinces. Crete becomes intriguing because it checks almost all of the boxes. Almost all of the boxes. There, there's when when you watch the documentaries, when I've watched people explain Crete, they can also almost they can usually almost line the whole thing up, but then at the very end it becomes unfrazzled because they're looking for dates around 900 BCE instead of 9000 BCE. What's interesting about Crete, though, is that 
it's established academic knowledge is mainstream the mainstream view is that it has been habitated by people for 130,000 years and I showed you the Mediterranean around Crete with the sea level lowered 400 feet which would be the level of the last ice age there's no land bridge to Crete you're not getting there by walking you're getting there by boat so 130,000 years ago there were people on Crete the only implication of that, not the only one, a, main a major implication of that is that if there were people there, they had to have gotten there by boat. They didn't swim. It's too far to swim. The other interesting thing is on Crete, we see a Neolithic farming culture, and it's firmly established as far back as 7000 BCE. There's also evidence of an earlier culture that that farming culture replaced, and then around 3000 BCE, we see the Minoans. We see that culture come into that Neolithic farming culture on Crete. So, continuous occupation, we can look back and see these cultures. The other interesting thing, one of the other interesting things about the Minoans is there's two sets of scripts, what they call Minoan script, and also Linear A, which are both, uh, they believe, uh, the uh, preceders of Linear B. Linear B has been deciphered. Minoan script and Linear A still have not been deciphered. So we have writing that uh, we find on Crete that we cannot read and dates far back into the past before any known other writing. We also know that um, Crete has been occupied for at least 130,000 years. When we look at it, there's clearly a bull culture. There is something exotic about the culture that we see on Crete. It's a high culture, and it seems very mature. There are well-documented ruins there. The climate in 9600 BCE was a good climate, just like it is today. And Crete is accessible via the Mediterranean from the Atlantic, which was one of our criteria. However, there are some real problems with Crete being the Atlantean capital. It's really too close to the world that Plato knew. It's too close to Egypt. It's not outside the Strait of Gibraltar. There are some arguments that there are other straits that could be interpreted as the Strait of Heracles. But Crete, it's actually part of Greece, and geographically it's so close, Plato would have known about it, and he wouldn't have told us uh, he wouldn't have used Crete, he wouldn't have described Crete to us while telling us he was telling us a true story of something farther in the past. We also have the challenge of the landmass, and I mentioned I'm going to use this 345 mile um, slope to the sea, and even with the lower uh, sea levels, there's just not enough room in the Mediterranean for any of these Mediterranean locations to have been the capital city. Does that mean Crete wasn't Atlantis? Of course it does not mean that. It, this is where everyone else has kind of gotten to this and they say, well, it's not the capital, so it's not Atlantis. Maybe Santorini is, which of course is Santorini's ridiculously close to, um, to Crete. Well, it's not. This is the dialogue, if we're, if we're literally taking Plato as true, and he tells us that there's a 3,000 stadia gently sloping plane to the sea that the city sat on, then we have to be able to find that, and we just can't find that at Crete. Having said that, I think there's still a really good chance that Crete was part of the Atlantean Kingdom, which means Crete is part of Atlantis, which means if we keep looking at this, Crete might be part of Atlantis with a little a. As I was putting the images together for this video, going through my notes, I had forgotten, but 
I've highlighted it here. There are some very, very strange underwater formations to the south of Crete. They look to me exactly like the early LIDAR images we're getting out of the Amazon, where it's potentially something that, in this case, is under the seafloor, under silt, it's been submerged. The scope of it is substantial. That the, the, the area I have highlighted is um, dozens and dozens of miles across. Also, when I lowered the sea level by 400 feet, this area is still underwater. You have to lower the sea level by something like 400 meters to start to get this area above water. So I have no idea what it is, but it is so regimentally laid out that it certainly does seem like something. So in our analysis, when we look at Crete, there's lots of evidence that it was probably a memory, or it's probably all that was left of the Atlantean culture that also would have evolved because it was considerably earlier. And there are still unexplored and interesting anomalies in and around the island. So let's fire up the old Atlantis detector. Here, there's a lot of compelling information on Crete. I'm not going to try and go into it all. I don't want these videos to be an hour long. Uh, Crete is easy uh, to research and is very well documented with the Minoans. I pulled two excerpts from two articles here, one from the University of Washington, one from uh, Cambridge University Press. The first one is just um, uh, an official academic statement establishing the Minoan 5,000 years ago and then replacing uh, the Neolithic uh, agrarian community 4,000 years before that. And then I pulled an article from Cambridge University that shows there's evidence maybe of even um, something before the, the, uh, the agrarian culture that got replaced, right? The Neolithic reoccupation. Um, that gets us... All, oh, that you gets guys, us get back. the so fuck out! The gap, I'm trying to find percentages, get, and, and there's get, no easy way to do get, it, and, and, get out. and the percentage seems very Fuckers. accurate. Um, get. It's, it's more just a guide. And get plus, out, Fuckers! If you look at all the compelling information they found on Crete, if you look at the Minoans and the rooms they have, and you look at that culture and all of get the... Out. Um, Evidence around no, that culture. Get out! Back, get out! Get the fuck out! We know that was uh, for at least 130,000 years. We have the agrarian Neolithic uh, population there, and we can see that. Get out! So all in all, there's a 27% time gap. That that's that's all there is. We we have culturally, we have the anthropology, we have um, all of the artifacts we can trace. Arguably, the occupation, uh, a Neolithic occupation back to within a margin of error of Atlantis. That margin of error is basically 27%. That's a big margin of error. I, I get it. But all we have to do is solve that 27% and Crete fits the province of Atlantis almost perfectly. We also know that the Atlanteans have pushed into the Mediterranean area waging war. Crete is a very location to do that against the Greeks. Get up. So if Crete's one of those provinces, it should be a name in the twins list. 
Now, I've worked with a linguist, and we've loosely identified some associations. I haven't finished the studying, so all I want to do now when we find a place that feels like it's it's a good candidate as a province of Atlanta, I want to identify the potential twin names, and we'll park those, and then when we get the whole thing figured out, then we'll go back and we'll dig into that linguistic um, and phonetic information and see how close of a match we can get. Here are the two names I like for Creek and the Minoan are the Nisus and the Nestor uh, twins. Both of those have a uh, linguistic and phonetic tie to the Minoan. And I think we can probably find some experts and see how close we can get to agreeing that those names linguistically come from this region. So I think it's really interesting when you really look at it that Crete aligning to the Atlantean Empire, the only piece of data we don't have is a 27% gap in the timeline. We can get all the way back using current academic understanding. We can get all the way back to 7000 BC. We need to get back to 9600 BC. The difference there, if you take the reciprocal of that 27%, is 73. So we're going to use that since everything else seems to line up. I'm going to say there's a 73% chance that Crete was one of the Atlantean provinces. There's a 0% chance it was the Atlantean capital. It doesn't fit any of the criteria um, that we established, and it can't stand up to our Atlantis detector of that 345-mile gently sloping plane to the sea. Crete has a lot going for it, though. It has well-documented ancient history. It's still a tourist site, so it's not only legitimate ancient history, but it's very well-studied ancient history. It has multiple forms of writing, some of which are still undeciphered, that suggest something going on in the past. It's a cultural fit for Atlantis, and it seems to culturally um, present in a lot of the frescoes and murals that we can still see uh, concepts that seem to resonate with the Atlantean ideals. It's a location known to be populated in 9600 BCE and actually well before that. And we have a date of 7000 BCE for an agricultural transformation. Well, that time period, 7000 BCE, 9600 BCE, it's a long time, but the, it's very hard to see that far back in the past. So those are approaching a margin of error. I'm not saying they're within a margin of error, but they are approaching a margin of error. So there's a relatively small gap then between the mainstream academic view and the view that this was a province of Atlanta. We've identified uh, two twin names that should be studied as possible linguistic uh, or phonetic relationships with the Minoans. And we're going to put Crete as a 73% chance of having been a province of Atlantis based upon our analysis. We will come back to that and we'll verify that because we're not going to finish this series until everything, so we've answered everything. Uh, but right now we're going to park this to 73% positive chance. Shut up, fucker! I 
know we've just gotten started on the location analysis, which is, of course, the interesting piece to this entire series. But in order to do this right, we have to have the context set. And some of the reactions I got to the first video suggested to me that I hadn't done a good enough job yet of explaining the methodology that we're following. So I'm going to do that in this video. I'm currently also working on the Malta video, and that place is bonkers. Um, so it's taking me a little longer than I thought it would to get it all together. So from a methodology standpoint, we are working towards a grand unified theory of Atlantis. As I pointed out in some of the other videos, but I'll point out here, Atlantis is actually three things. This is very clear from the dialogue. It's a city, it's a continent, and it's a kingdom. In the look for Atlantis, we're often confronted with what we call the fool's choice. This goes along with Occam's Razor. Occam's Razor says that we want to push away all the noise and that the most simple answer, the most obvious answer, is probably the right answer. The fool's choice tells us that we don't want to find ourselves restricting our analysis, thinking that we have to make choices between A or B, when in fact we can also consider A and B, which is what we're doing, and that is clearly the foundational principle that's going to lead us to this grand unified theory of Atlantis. As I've said before, and I will continue to make the point, Atlantis is at least 10 places. We get this from the dialogue. So it's silly to think that the places that show signs of something going on in 9600 BC and show signs of an exotic culture, it's almost like because we are finding more than one of them, it's nullified our ability to correlate this, these findings to the dialogues. We're going to use this map and we're going to methodically look at each of these places and make an assessment. We're going to decide if the place qualifies as a location that could be the capital city, and if not, we're going to see if it qualifies as a location that could be one of the Atlantean provinces. Once we've done that, we're going to look phonetically at the twins list to see if there's any hint or Use the Perry Rees map. I'll give you an example. In the very first video, we looked at two twin names, Gnosis and Nestor. Now, I don't want to jump ahead. I'm trying to be as methodical as I can. But that first one, M-N-E-S-E-U-S, phonetically is pronounced almost identical to K-N-O-S-S-O-S. Gnosis. This is the name of the Minoan capital on Crete. Interesting. We're not to that analysis yet, but this is the types of things that we're breaking apart with this methodology so that we can organize the whole thing and build both a physical and a linguistic case. So that's our goal, and that's why we're using this worksheet. As we go through these videos, we will record our analysis, and by the time we're done, and by the time we come back and look at the areas that we've identified gaps in, this worksheet is going to paint the entire picture of our Grand Unified Theory. So as we work to our Grand Unified Theory and we do our analysis, what I'm doing is we identify all of the criteria 
and then if we can't meet any of the criteria, we attempt to convert that gap into a percentage. As I mentioned in the Crete video, but I probably wasn't as clear as I could have been, this isn't a perfect science. The percentage is going to look more precise than it actually is. It's more of a guide. But I wanted to convert it into something quantifiable so we can see when we're far apart and we can see when we're not. For example, with Crete, everything lines up. We have the exotic culture, we have um, the ruins, we have um, a landmass that would have been strategic, may have been mentioned, may not have been. We have to do that twins analysis. But the goal is always to get to a percentage. So in this case, we took the timeline of Atlantis, 9600 BC. We took the timeline that um, modern archaeology gets us to on Crete, 7000 BC. We looked at that gap of 2600 years. We converted it into a percentage. How far, you know, how far back we need to go versus how far back can we go? It's 27%. That is the only gap. That's the only gap if if we are taking Plato's story as true. It is a 27% gap. So now when we start to throw these places together, we'll be able to see how far or close apart we are. And what we're going to find, I believe, is that we're really not that far apart. That we've found enough, especially when we start to factor into Lake Tepe, which I'll probably do a separate video on, that establishes the technology level, that establishes that advanced idea. So we know what we're looking for. We're looking for a Gobele Tepe somewhere. So we have it all. We'll, we'll quantify it. Once we lay it all out in that worksheet, then we'll see where we are. The other thing we're looking for, as I've mentioned, is the idea of Atlantis with a capital A and then Atlantis without the capital A. Now, I think to punctuate it, it's always going to have a capital A. But my point there is one of these 10 Atlantises is going to be the capital. That's the, the capital A. And the, all the others will be provinces. They're all still Atlantis. As, as we've talked about, the Atlantis is three things. That, that's one of our themes. The last thing I'm going to do is I'm going to start doing kind of a, it won't be the same piece of film, but I'm going to start doing a summary at the beginning of these videos. If you're following along, please don't get put off by that. I'm trying to keep these as uh, uh, concise uh, as possible, but we've got new people coming in. For example, one of the comments I got on one of the other videos was, what a shame it was that I didn't know what I was talking about because I'm not considering the dialogue. I clearly haven't read it. Well, of course, not only have, have we read it here together, but we have decomposed it. We've done a lot of work with it. But, but people don't know. They watch video number eight or nine. They don't go back and watch videos number one or two. So I'm going to start including that, that, that summary introduction, whatever you want to call it, just to keep people up to speed. It's probably the right thing to do. And I'm learning how to communicate this as much as I'm learning, just like you are, all this interesting things about Atlantis. So I'm working on three, as I said, that should be out by this weekend. Um, and uh, thank you for following along. Thank you for sticking with me. Ah! Fuck. Malta is an amazing place and has long been associated with the Atlantean legends. It's a small island located just south of the Mediterranean Sea in the Mediterranean. Now, the Mediterranean Sea is one of the only named locations listed in those two platonic dialogues that we're working with, Critias and Timaeus. It still matches this location today. It's a known place. It was known when Solon went to Egypt, and that name has held all the way through today. They also mention other places by name. They mention Europe, they mention Egypt, they mention Libya, they mention Asia, and they mention Greece. Those are very big names. 
the Serenium C is the only, it's the only body of water mentioned other than the Atlantic Ocean. On Malta, we can see that same agrarian uh, community, the same agrarian transformation that we saw on Crete, only on Malta it happens in 5200 BC, 